This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a new series titled Sick and Murdered, in which I detail cases where a perpetrator causes a person to fall ill, sometimes even killing them for their own selfish gain. Sometimes financial gain is the motive, but a more bizarre reason is that some seek special attention as the family member or caretaker of their victim or victims. Our first case is a story of a mother who deliberately kept all three of her children sick for many years in order to receive attention and financial gain for herself. This fascinating case details a rare psychiatric phenomenon known most commonly as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. This is Chapter 1, The Case of Lori Williamson. On February 28, 2006, two women walked into the office of the constable of Harris County, Texas, to undertake a mission that previously they could never have imagined doing. They were there to report their friend, Lori Williamson, for child abuse. The women weren't friends, and they didn't even know each other that well. But over time... Both had come to suspect something terrible about their friend. Darcy Wall, a mother herself and wife of a local pastor, had been a friend to Lori for some time. Lori had three children, all of whom had several serious illnesses. Lori was a divorced mother, and many people from her church and community had become friends and supporters of the Williamson family. Susan Owen was a nurse in a pediatrician's office where Lori took her children for their frequent doctor appointments. Susan and Lori had become friends. Now, upon comparing notes over the past several months, after both had become suspicious of Lori Williamson, they had first tried contacting Child Protective Services, but their concerns had been dismissed. They did not give up, however, and now took their story to the police. They were directed to Sergeant Mike Johnson of the Domestic Violence Unit. They laid their suspicions out for him. Lori Williamson, age 48, was the mother of three children, ages 11, 8, and 6. All three children had serious illnesses. At least, that's what Lori said. According to Lori, all three of her children were suffering from a rare disease and were not expected to live past their teens. Lori had said this to numerous people, often in the presence of the children. The women believed the children were in danger and were trying to get someone to investigate. Darcy and Susan had come to believe that Lori had Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Okay, just a note before I continue the story. There are many, many medical terms in this episode. I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on television. So please forgive my ignorance if I mispronounce a term or make some other error. I've gone off court documents, and I do know a little about psychiatric conditions, but had to research some of the more unfamiliar medical terminology without any medical knowledge, so I've stuck to the basics. I'm sure you in the medical field will be able to tell. Okay, let's continue. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a psychiatric condition that is also known as factitious disorder by proxy, parent-induced illness, or by the courts as medical child abuse. It is most commonly referred to in popular culture as Munchausen by proxy, so I will abbreviate it during this episode to MBP. MBP is both a psychiatric condition and a form of child abuse in which a caregiver, usually a mother, introduces illness in her child or children to gain attention for herself. The name Munchausen came from the German aristocrat Baron Karl Friedrich von Munchausen, who lived during the 1700s. He was known to exaggerate his military honors and tell fantastic and outlandish tales about himself. Munchausen syndrome describes a condition in which a person fabricates their own illnesses to gain attention. The by-proxy designation, then, describes inducing illness in others. It was first called Munchausen syndrome by Richard Asher in 1951, and the name stuck. MBP abuse may be chronic or episodic, with some cases, like the one I'll be talking about in this episode, ongoing for years and with multiple victims. Since the motivation is for attention, 
the mother will bring the child or children frequently to see doctors, nurse practitioners, therapists, etc. The child may be seen by a doctor or even hospitalized and then seem to recover only to return with another illness or another bout of the same illness. 70% of abusers continue to induce symptoms even in the hospital after admitting their children for treatment. Some of the most commonly induced illnesses in children include central nervous system disorders such as comas, seizures, and epilepsy. The way the symptoms are induced by the parent include giving the child sedatives, injecting insulin, poisoning them with large doses of salt, smothering the child, or just falsely claiming to doctors that the symptoms exist. For example, saying the child has seizures, but they're not witnessed by medical personnel. Gastrointestinal illnesses are also common, like vomiting and diarrhea, brought on by the child being given Ipecac, salt, or laxatives. Respiratory symptoms like apnea are induced through suffocation or poisoning. Bleeding is sometimes induced by giving the child blood thinners. Rashes are induced by applying caustics to the skin. And IV lines have been contaminated by parents with MBP with urine or feces to introduce bacteria and keep the child ill. Even though all of these measures, of course, cause harm to a child and can even induce death, the motivation of the parent is not necessarily to kill the child. While some have taken it to this level in order to gain sympathy as the grieving parent, most need to keep the child sick enough to continue to get the attention of doctors, nurses, family, and or the community. An estimated 6-10% to 10% of MBP victims do die, however. Some parents begin inducing illnesses in their children from birth. However, the average age at onset of the faked illness is about three years old. Most child victims of this type of abuse are between the ages of two and six years old. Sometimes the abuse can continue into the child's teen years and beyond, although it is uncommon. As I previously mentioned, most perpetrators of MBP are women, approximately 90 to 98%. Mothers account for 85% of all perpetrators. Others are grandparents, healthcare workers, and other caregivers. In some very rare cases, both the mother and the father are complicit in the abuse. Many of the perpetrators are familiar with medicine and or medical terminology and procedures, having worked in the healthcare field in some capacity or have had nursing training. They will present themselves as a very caring parent, rarely leaving the child's side, either in or out of the hospital. These mothers often become close to the hospital staff, and some become friends, like Lori Williamson did with Susan Owen. Of course, their knowledge of the medical field is also helpful for the abuser on how to keep the child ill, as well as how to hide what they are doing. Some of the perpetrators, about 75% according to one study, have a history of faking illness in themselves and may be both inducing illness in their children and lying about their own symptoms. Some perpetrators have been diagnosed with other psychiatric disorders, including antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, or narcissistic personality disorder. Psychiatrists doing research with MBP perpetrators have found that they are able to harm their children without feeling guilt or remorse. They explain that these types of perpetrators do not view the child as having his or her own rights or feelings. There have been some references to Munchausen by proxy in popular culture and news stories recently. Much like multiple personality disorder was the psychiatric disorder that the public was most fascinated by in the 1970s and 80s, Munchausen by proxy is rare and strange enough to have found its way into popular books and movies. As far back as 1986, one of the characters in Stephen King's novel It was a boy named Eddie Kasbrack, who was a victim of MBP. Eddie's mother is depicted as controlling and domineering. She convinces her son that he has severe asthma and was constantly in need of an inhaler. He later finds out that his medicine is actually a placebo. A dramatic scene in the book takes place when he finally confronts his mother about her deception. Some of you may also remember the 1999 movie, The Sixth Sense. In it, a young boy claims to see and communicate with dead people. In one scene, which, I'm not going to lie, made me jump really high, the boy feels compelled to attend a memorial service for a little girl who has recently died after a prolonged illness. 
He enters her room, and while there, she appears to him. I won't tell you how. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin the surprise. But you will jump. And she gives him a box containing a videotape and instructs him to give it to her father. In it is proof that her mother had been lacing her food with something to keep her sick, which ultimately killed her. The father finds out from watching the video his daughter left for him, why she really died. I just can't imagine a child being in bed for two years. How many doctors? I think it was six. Six different doctors? I think so, yeah. I just heard the uh, little one is falling ill now. God help him. Excuse me, mister. Are you Kara's daddy? It's for you. She wanted to tell you something. There's quite a bit in this scene that is taken directly from real MBP cases. The mother as the perpetrator, the use of poisons to keep the child sick, the mother as the primary caregiver, and the father being unaware that the child is being harmed purposefully are all typical of MBP cases. There is one other thing the movie depicts. The girl has apparently communicated with the boy to warn her father because the mother has now begun to sicken her younger sister. If one child dies in MBP cases and the mother is not found out, she will sometimes start inducing symptoms in another child in order to continue receiving the attention she lost after the first child's death. Many people first became aware of Munchausen by proxy by watching The Sixth Sense, even though the term is never mentioned in the film. But most recently, a real-life case of MBP was in the news with the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard. I'll just give a brief summary of this case, as it's been covered well by several other podcasts. If you want to hear the whole story, you can listen to Generation Y, episode 234, or Sword and Scale, episode 49. Dee Dee had been caring for her ill daughter, Gypsy, all of her life. Gypsy was in a wheelchair, had to be fed by a tube, and was said to suffer from leukemia, asthma, and muscular dystrophy, among other illnesses. But after Dee Dee was found stabbed to death, and it was discovered that Gypsy's boyfriend and Gypsy herself had planned and carried out her murder, the whole story began to unravel. Dee Dee had been medically abusing her daughter since birth, and had made the girl complicit in the ruse as Gypsy became a teen and young adult. Gypsy, in an effort to escape her controlling and abusive mother, resorted to murder. This, of course, was unheard of, that a victim of MBP kills their abuser. So the story made headlines and even became a highly watched documentary this year titled Mommy Dead and Dearest. But the case of Lori Williamson began far before the Dee Dee Blanchard case was ever heard of. To begin the story, we have to go back to 1995, when Lori Williamson's first child was born. Lori Leah Laughlin was born on January 3, 1968. She was married to John H. Williamson, and they lived in Spring, Texas. Lori had worked as a part-time nurse's aide for a time early in her marriage. Their first child, Tom, was born on March 16, 1995. By the time he was five years old, Tom had already been diagnosed with several medical issues, including Crohn's disease, a serious intestinal illness, Tourette's syndrome, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. He was on a number of medications by the time he began kindergarten. Lori reported to doctors that Tom would zone out and become non-responsive, periodically just staring into space. These spells were diagnosed as partial complex seizures by doctors, a form of epilepsy. Lori's pediatrician sent her to a neurologist to have Tom evaluated. Dr. Balber Singh was a specialist in pediatric epilepsy. Dr. Singh noted that Tom seemed to be doped up or over-medicated. He was drowsy and unsteady on his feet. After receiving the results of a blood test, the doctor found that the boy had high levels of Dilantin, an anti-seizure medication. He had double the amount of medication in his system than had been prescribed. 
The doctor prescribed the correct dosage of another type of medication for Tom to control his seizures. Lori continued to report to the doctor that her son continued to have many seizures daily. Dr. Singh then ordered an EEG test, an electrical test of brain activity. The results were not definitive. Some of the tests indicated some generalized epileptic form activity. Others showed no abnormal activity. Dr. Singh then ordered another EEG test that would monitor activity in Tom's brain over 23 hours. While Lori claimed that he'd suffered three or four seizures over that time, none were recorded on the EEG. Dr. Singh continued to prescribe higher dosages of the anti-seizure medication, but even though Tom was given a high dosage of the powerful medication, Lori continued to report that he was still having up to 11 seizures per day. By this time, Lori had two more children. Roger was born on May 21, 1997, and Chrissy on September 1, 1999. When Chrissy was a newborn, her mother began to report to doctors that the baby would become cyanotic, turning blue due to a low oxygen saturation in the blood. She was hospitalized a number of times during the first few weeks and months of her life. Soon after Chrissy was born, Lori and John separated. They divorced the following year. After their divorce, Lori did not allow him to see his children. He had not sought court-ordered visits, but thought they would work out a visitation schedule between them. However, whenever he would try and see the children, Lori would say they were too ill. Later, when he began to insist on visitations, she would call the police on him when he arrived at her home. She would tell responding officers that her ex-husband was threatening her. Meanwhile, the doctors who were treating Tom were unable to control his seizures, these, of course, being reported by Lori. As a last resort, the doctor referred Lori to a surgeon to implant a vagal nerve stimulator into Tom. This is a device that can decrease seizure activity when medication has failed. The vagal nerve is the nerve that runs from the brain to the stomach. The device is inserted just under the skin, and a wire is run from the device to the nerve and is wrapped around the nerve. It stimulates the nerve every 1 to 10 minutes. The amount is programmed from the outside of the body. Shocks to the nerve can be programmed for different lengths of time and different strengths. The surgery was performed in January 2001, when Tom was not quite six. The doctors then set the vagal nerve stimulator at different strengths, but it did not stop the seizures, according to Lori. The device was deactivated after six weeks and never reactivated. In February 2001, Tom was hospitalized with a failure-to-thrive diagnosis. He was not growing properly, was underweight, and was often tired and lethargic. Lori would now tell people that her children suffered from a rare mitochondrial disorder. This is a disorder that occurs when structures that produce energy for a cell malfunction. Mitochondria are unable to burn food and oxygen to generate energy. Symptoms often include poor growth, developmental delays, and muscle weakness. There is no cure, and medications and physical therapy are used to manage the symptoms. The condition is chronic and can last for years, with symptoms often worsening over time. Tom was hospitalized, and he was given nutrients intravenously. While there, he was seen by many doctors across disciplines, including neurology, endocrinology, hematology, oncology, and genetics. The neurologist began to suspect that the child might be a victim of Munchausen by proxy and called a child protection meeting at the hospital with other physicians. However, they determined that they did not have enough evidence to make a diagnosis of MVP. While we might think that it should be simple for doctors to figure out if someone is faking an illness, it is not so simple, especially when it comes to children. Experts were consulted on this case, pediatric doctors and surgeons, and what was explained was that most of the time, the information they consider most highly are the reports of the child's caretaker. The history parents give to their child's doctors is important and usually trusted. After all, the parent is the person most invested in the child getting well, or at least that's what we believe. Because of this, doctors almost never assume that a parent is lying. Clinical tests are useful, but as we saw with the tests they took to measure Tom's seizures, are often not as reliable as what is witnessed, most of the time, of course, by the parent or caregiver. In fact, a doctor's testimony in a case of medical child abuse I read stated, the history from the caretaker 
and any objective results or observations are given equal weight and are considered indistinguishable. Before Tom was discharged from the hospital, a feeding tube was placed into his nose, down his throat, and into his stomach so that he could be fed liquid formula. But the doctor's concerns were not the first time someone had become suspicious of the child's illnesses. The previous fall, teachers at Tom's school began to grow concerned. While he had been a healthy preschooler, by the time he'd gotten to kindergarten, they noticed a change. His mother told teachers that he was on a very special restricted diet due to his illness. The teachers observed that Tom was losing weight rapidly. He was very thin and often appeared tired, almost to the point of being lethargic. He always seemed hungry, they said, but was not allowed to eat any extra food due to his dietary restrictions. At one point in the school year, Tom had spent some time with his grandparents. It was then that he began to look healthier, gained weight, and improved his performance in school. Upon seeing this, they decided to take action. Teachers, the school psychologist, and the school nurse drafted a letter they planned to send to Tom's doctors. They were concerned that Lori was abusing Tom, not feeding him, and over-medicating him. Before they sent the letter, they approached Lori with their concerns. Bad move. She responded by first transferring him to a different school and then by pulling him out of public school altogether, saying she decided to homeschool him. A neighbor of Lori's who babysat Tom after school also grew concerned. He was very thin and was constantly hungry. Lori provided food for Tom to eat, which the babysitter said was bland and unpalatable. This was before the feeding tube was inserted. She said that Tom begged for food from the time he arrived at her house until the time his mother picked him up. Nine months after the feeding tube was inserted through his nose, Lori took Tom to another doctor. She reported her son as having a mitochondrial disorder as well as a feeding disorder. She felt it was now necessary that his feeding tube be replaced by a gastronomy feeding tube. This type of tube is surgically inserted through the abdomen and into the stomach. She also reported Tom as having a decreased muscle mass and said he could not hold himself up or walk easily. In December 2001, Tom underwent surgery to have a gastronomy tube inserted. While he was in surgery, the doctor also took some muscle tissue from Tom's leg to test for a mitochondrial disorder. The test came out negative. Lori, however, continued to tell people that he suffered from the disorder. At the same time, Lori was also telling people that all three of her children had the rare disorder. Not only did they have it, she said, but they were seriously ill and were not expected to live past their teens. She would say this to several people, often in the presence of the children. No doctor, as far as anyone could determine, had ever told her that her children were terminally ill. Meanwhile, Lori reported to doctors soon after Chrissy was born that she had difficulty swallowing and would choke when given food orally. As a result, Chrissy also had a gastronomy tube surgically inserted before she was two years old. Chrissy wasn't growing or reaching normal milestones as a baby and then a toddler. Lori again explained this as a symptom of her mitochondrial disorder. By the age of three, Chrissy was still not walking or talking, was in a wheelchair, and also wore leg braces. Roger, her middle child, had fewer medical diagnoses than his siblings, but Lori still said that all three were suffering from the rare disorder. By now, Lori had complete control of what was going on under her roof. All three kids were homeschooled. Their father had no access to them, and she had been able to get all three diagnosed with multiple medical issues. She cut everyone out of her life who challenged or questioned her, including doctors. She simply moved on until she got the tests and the diagnosis she was pushing for. She would refuse to allow doctors to share information releases about the children with other doctors or hospitals, using HIPAA, or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, the U.S. federal law that protects medical records of patients for their privacy. In this way, she was able to doctor hop until she got what she wanted, which was to have her children diagnosed as completely disabled. Here are the diagnoses for each as of early 2006. Tom, at almost 11 years old, had multiple medical problems including mitochondrial disorder, metabolic disorder, neurological regression syndrome, 
global development delay, seizure disorder, hypotonia, status post-history of failure to thrive, gastrointestinal malabsorption, gastroesophageal reflux, esophagitis, status post-gastric button placement, hypothyroidism, hypotension, urinary incontinence, stool incontinence, heat intolerance due to poor thermoregulation from the metabolic disease state, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Tourette syndrome, decreased acoustic reflexes in the right ear, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorder, no doubt, pragmatic language disorder, decreasing IQ scores, sensory integration disorder, auditory processing disorder, and poor immune function. Chrissy, at six, also had almost all the same diagnoses and in addition was diagnosed with scoliosis, hypotonia requiring leg braces, poor bladder function, short stature, well, la-di-da, so what? I have that as well. Bilateral hip sublimation, osteopenia, photophobia. What the heck is that? Fear of getting your photo taken? Lack of safety awareness. Let me ask you, what six-year-old is safety aware? And extremely susceptible to aspiration pneumonia. But perhaps the worst thing her mother had convinced doctors to diagnose Chrissy with was laryngeal abnormality. Because of this diagnosis, it states, Chrissy has been unable to take any medication or foods by mouth. Everything must be given to her via her G-button feeding tube. No exceptions. Yes, if you understood that to mean that Chrissy could have no food by mouth, you understood it correctly. Chrissy had never eaten solid foods in her entire life. Roger had far fewer medical issues, according to his mother and the doctors. The almost nine-year-old boy's report stated Roger was diagnosed with mitochondrial disorder, metabolic disorder, neurological regression syndrome, global development delay, hypotonia, gastrointestinal malabsorption, gastroesophageal reflux, swallowing dysfunction with thin liquids, allergic rhinitis, irritable bowel syndrome, nocturnal enuresis, heat intolerance due to poor thermoregulation from the metabolic disease state, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, severe mood swings, sensory integration disorder, auditory processing disorder, and poor immune function. As you can imagine, the children were on a veritable pharmacy of medications. They also were required to have occupational, speech, and physical therapy twice a week. None of the three children were toilet trained, and all of them still wore diapers. Tom had previously been toilet trained, but once he was confined to a wheelchair, Lori began putting diapers on him, and he regressed. She told doctors that the children were sensitive to heat and light, and those who entered her house reported that it was always dark, with heavy shades over the windows, and Lori kept the temperature at 62 degrees. She kept the children indoors almost all of the time and rarely let them outside to play. When the occupational speech and physical therapists were, later, required to come to the Williamson home for sessions, they had been seen for years in a therapist's office, they were alarmed and reported their findings. The children, especially Tom and Chrissy, appeared to be starving, and were not receiving adequate nutrition. Their mother did not provide them with sufficient stimulation and inconsistently homeschooled the children. She limited their growth and independence, would not allow Chris to be potty trained, and wanted her to stay in her wheelchair at all times. She insisted that Roger also needed a G-button feeding tube, like his siblings, even though he could eat normally when he was allowed to. Lori, they reported, would become upset if the therapist reported any progress the children made and always seemed to be focused on their deficits. The children had heard repeatedly that they were suffering from a terminal illness and believed that they were going to die. The therapist also reported that the children behaved much worse when their mother was around. In 2004, Lori underwent a biopsy and the results were good news. She herself did not have the mitochondrial disorder which meant that she could not have passed the maternally inherited disease to her children. However, Lori continued to tell people that her children were dying from the rare disease. All the years Lori had been caring for her supposedly ill children, she was unemployed. She lived off a combination of disability payments from Social Security, child support payments from her ex-husband, and donations from her church and community. 
it would later be determined that from 2000 to 2005, she had received more than $150,000 from church members at several churches, and even more than that in donated goods and services. Church and community members paid some of her bills or would donate their services. For example, Lori told one of the children's physical therapists that a housekeeper was paid for by someone else, and another volunteer paid for her gardener. People would volunteer to come in and do repairs or maintenance on her air conditioning and heating, or on her computer or other home repairs. Groups had come to renovate the children's rooms in accordance with their special needs, or just to make the rooms nicer and more cheerful. Her van equipped with a wheelchair ramp had been donated by the Veterans of Foreign Wars group. At Christmas, she was on many churches' lists of needy families, and cash, food, and gifts were donated to her and the children. To get the van, she had told the therapist that she needed, quote, more pictures of the children in wheelchairs to give to the VFW. Even Roger was sitting in a wheelchair in the photo, although he could walk. In 2004, she had been given a free trip with the children to Disney World, paid for by the Make-A-Wish Foundation. She had also begun in 2006 to raise over $300,000 to purchase a new wheelchair-accessible home and van. She also solicited the television show Extreme Makeover Home Edition to ask them to do the work on her home for free. The show, which ran several seasons on American television, would pick a family who was in most need due to an ill family member or other serious circumstances. However, Lori was also worried that because of all the money she was receiving in donations, the government might see the extra money as income and cut off her disability benefits. So she asked a friend to do her a favor. Would she, Lori asked, open a secret second bank account where she could hide the cash contributions she received? She didn't feel right about it and refused. The woman began to talk with some of Lori's other supporters, including Darcy Wall, and they began to compare notes. Something wasn't right, and at first they decided to approach Lori with their concerns. They still gave her the benefit of the doubt, believing that perhaps she just didn't know the rules concerning the money and goods that were donated to her. Maybe, they thought, she was doing the best she could for the children, even though it seemed that they were getting worse by the day, and she was just overwhelmed. Darcy and some of the other church members came up with a suggestion and presented it to her. Why didn't Lori pick a group of a few people she trusted as an advisory committee? They would work with her to organize the help in her home, provide emotional support, and assist in raising and directing funds. In return, they just asked Lori to be transparent with them about the money that was coming in and how it was being spent. Lori refused. But in early spring of 2005, something took place that would start the walls tumbling down. See, it's very difficult some say almost impossible, to determine for sure if a parent is committing medical child abuse. Many of the things that Lori said were symptoms could easily be attributed to a mitochondrial disorder or any one of the other diagnoses she had been able to have documented. The weight loss, slow growth, muscle deterioration that created movement difficulties, compromised brain function, all of those symptoms could go hand in hand with certain illnesses. Or she could be deliberately creating them by not giving her children enough nutrients, stimulation, or opportunities for learning, physical activity, and socialization. She could also be over-medicating them, which could lead to lethargy and inability to concentrate or focus. In fact, one of the only ways pediatricians have to definitively prove that a child might be the victim of Munchausen by proxy is what is called therapeutic separation. That is, removing the child from the parent long enough to see if their health improves. Of course, it is not easy, nor should it be, for a child to be removed from a parent's custody without some clear-cut proof of abuse or neglect. It's a catch-22 situation. But in March of 2005, Lori created the separation herself. Now, she was claiming that she was ill as well. She began experiencing seizures. Doctors diagnosed her seizures as psychosomatic, or a condition that is believed to be present by the patient but is not real. If a person has a psychosomatic illness, they may actually experience the symptoms of that illness, but they are not actually physically present. Symptoms are brought on by stress, anxiety, and or belief that they are real. Lori was put on an EEG for an extended period of time, and no seizure activity was recorded, which is why her symptoms were diagnosed as psychosomatic. 
Even so, Lori claimed her seizures caused her to be almost completely paralyzed. As a result, she needed help for herself and the children 24 hours a day. Many volunteers and healthcare workers were called in to take over duties, including making sure the children were fed regularly. For Chrissy, this meant by providing plenty of formula in her feeding pump. During this time, Lori was bedridden most of the time, and when not, she was confined to a wheelchair. Okay, one funny story for you in this sad and sick tale. First of all, many people witnessed Lori using her limbs during the time she was claiming to be paralyzed, so medical personnel suspected she was exaggerating her disability or downright lying. As well, they had determined that her seizures were faked. Lori was in the hospital during part of this time, and a friend had come to visit her. While the friend was in her room, Lori began experiencing one of her seizures. Nurses just walked by and ignored her. When her friend asked if they weren't going to do anything to help her, one nurse answered, she'll breathe when she needs to, and walked away. Oh, man. And apparently, Lori did. Anyway, these nice volunteers were helping out at Lori's house, and the kids were being fed regularly. As a result, Chrissy, who at this time was five years old and only wearing size 18-month clothes, yes, baby clothes, she was that tiny, began to gain weight and grow. In five months, she gained 25 pounds, doubling her weight. She also began walking. Roger and Tom also began to improve. Besides being happier and healthier, they also began to play and do things that their mother had claimed they could never do. Now it became apparent to many people that these children were not as ill as their mother made them out to be. The only conclusion was that she was lying about the illnesses and keeping them sick and wheelchair-bound to support her claims. Darcy Wall, realizing this, contacted Child Protective Services in October of 2005. However, they declined to take any action at that time. Darcy then contacted Susan Owen, the nurse who had her own suspicions in the past. Darcy knew that she was a nurse, and also that she'd been a close friend of Lori's, and wanted to get her take on the situation. Susan had seen things at Lori's house that had concerned her, and then been given the brush off by her friend. Susan hadn't been around the family for several months. While Lori was hospitalized, Susan went by the house to help. She saw Tom and Chrissy running around and playing, when formerly they had been confined to wheelchairs. She was astounded. She now knew that Lori had been lying to her. She shared her observations with Darcy. They made a decision. On February 28, 2006, Darcy and Susan went to the constable's office to report Lori Williamson for child abuse. The women explained the situation to Sergeant Mike Johnson of the Domestic Violence Unit in Harris County. They told him they suspected that Lori had Munchausen syndrome by proxy and that she was placing her children in danger by keeping them ill. At first, he said it sounded like something CPS should handle. They told him they'd already been down that road and had gotten nowhere. Sergeant Johnson, to his credit, researched MBP and was convinced that it was indeed a form of child abuse. He looked up a local case of MBP that had recently been prosecuted. A woman in Austin, Texas, had injected her son with insulin, almost resulting in his death. While investigating this crime, it was discovered that she had murdered her infant son in 1993 by either suffocating him or injecting him with insulin. She was convicted of felony injury to a child and given a 99-year sentence. Now Johnson contacted the prosecutor in that case to tell him about what he'd heard. Assistant District Attorney Mike Trent listened to the facts of the case and believed that this was most likely a case of Munchausen by proxy and that the children were in imminent danger. They immediately set about issuing grand jury subpoenas to every healthcare entity that had seen the children. They also took statements from friends, family members, and others who had knowledge of what was taking place in Lori's home. After they began contacting doctors, they received a letter from one of them on March 1st that stated, It has recently come to my attention that there are several extremely serious issues in regards to the health of the children and the possibility of Munchausen syndrome as well as Munchausen syndrome by proxy with this family. Assistant DA Mike Trent asked Sergeant Johnson to contact CPS with their findings and to have the children removed from Lori's custody. It was discovered that CPS had investigated at least five previous referrals 
that Lori Williamson was neglecting or abusing her children. But she had been able to convince caseworkers that she was doing the best she could to care for her terminally ill children. This time, however, they had the DA's office and the police department backing them up. On March 16, 2006, the children were removed from the home. In an ironic twist, March 16th was Tom's 11th birthday. The children were admitted to the hospital for evaluation. Tom was allowed to eat regular food, and his medications were greatly decreased. He had been wearing glasses for some time, but after an eye exam, it was determined that he did not need them. A physical therapist also determined that he did not need a wheelchair. He was also trained to use the toilet. His gastronomy feeding tube was removed. The vagal nerve stimulator that had been surgically implanted many years earlier, but deactivated since, remained. It would require a major surgery to have it removed. He was discharged three days after he was admitted. No seizure activity had been recorded during his time in the hospital. Chrissy, it was found, was able to eat orally and did not need the feeding tube. The tube was removed. Now six years old, she ate food by mouth for the first time in her life. Therapists had to teach her how to chew and swallow. She also did not need a wheelchair or leg braces, and they were removed. She had been sleeping with an oxygen tent in her bed at night, but that was also unnecessary. She also didn't need the glasses she wore. She was potty trained and taken out of diapers. She had been taking more than eight medications, but she was discharged with only one prescription, a mild laxative. Blood and chromosomal tests were done on all three children. The test came back negative for mitochondrial abnormalities. Surprise, surprise. A geneticist determined that it was very unlikely the children had the disorder because they showed progress and advancement in their physical functioning. With that type of illness, they would have shown regression and deterioration. The children first stayed temporarily with their maternal grandmother, and Chrissy stayed for several months with a family friend. She continued to thrive and could, for the first time, do things any normal healthy child could do. She learned to ride a two-wheel bike, jump rope, ride a horse, and even climb a rock wall. Of course, she loved to eat, having only recently experienced the taste of real food. Her favorite foods were pizza, whose isn't, spaghetti, and steak. Now the case against Lori moved forward, but it wasn't so cut and dried as you might think. Munchausen syndrome by proxy and even medical child abuse were not criminal offenses, if you can believe that. Most parents who are convicted of MBP are caught physically harming the child in some way, either by witnesses and, more commonly, by videotaping them in a hospital setting. Some have been observed injecting the child with something to make them ill, introducing toxins into IV lines, or smothering them to the point of unconsciousness. But investigators didn't have this type of proof in this case. They had to figure out what, in the eyes of the law, Lori could be held criminally responsible for. Mike Trent met with Dr. Rena Isaac, a pediatrician specializing in child abuse, to ask for her opinion. She pointed out that the children had undergone numerous unnecessary surgeries and procedures under their mother's care and consent. This could constitute the legal definition of serious bodily injury. Any procedure involving general anesthesia created a, quote, substantial risk of death that a patient or the legal guardian of a patient has to sign off on. The surgery itself could lead to serious complications, even death. Anyone who's had to undergo surgery has had to sign this cheery little form right before going under the knife. But first of all, doctors had performed the surgery, not Lori herself. And also, how could you make that a crime? Parents have to make these types of decisions for actual ill or injured children all the time, and you wouldn't want to see that type of precedent set. Mike Trent was able to find a subsection of the Texas Penal Code that stated, A person is criminally responsible for an offense committed by the conduct of another if, acting with the culpability required for the offense, he causes or aids an innocent or non-responsible person to engage in conduct prohibited by the definition of the offense. In other words, Lori lied to doctors and convinced them to perform the surgeries on her children, fully knowing that they were unnecessary. The prosecutor would argue that she was guilty of harming her children by proving three things, that the surgeries were medically unnecessary, that the surgeries met all the elements of injury to a child with serious bodily injury, and that Lori Williamson intentionally and knowingly caused the surgeries to be performed. 
The surgeries he would build his case on were the vagal nerve stimulator implantation performed on Tom and the two G-button placement feeding tubes performed on both Tom and Chrissy. The prosecutor laid out the case that for both of these procedures, there was almost no test results or objective basis for the surgeries that Lori could not have somehow manipulated. The vagal nerve stimulator, of course, was to help control Tom's consistent frequent seizures that Lori reported to doctors. The feeding tubes were placed in the children because of their failure to thrive. No one would think a mother would be deliberately starving her children, but by giving them very little nutrients, their symptoms mimicked the results of the deterioration one might see due to a mitochondrial disorder. All this was presented to a grand jury, who handed down an indictment against Lori Williamson for two counts of injury to a child with serious bodily injury and three counts of endangering a child. The three counts of endangerment were for the general mistreatment all three children had suffered at the hands of their mother. Lori, who had moved into a battered women's shelter after her children were taken from her, was tracked down. She had for years claimed to be a victim of domestic violence, even though there had never been any reports or proof of it being true, and her ex-husband denied it vehemently. She was arrested, ironically, at her doctor's office. The trial of the state of Texas versus Lori Leah Williamson began on August 4, 2008. Over 40,000 pages of evidence of abuse against the children was entered. The trial lasted four weeks, and over three dozen witnesses were called by the prosecution. Many were her former friends and church members who had supported Lori and her children for many years. After they found out how Lori had lied, abused her children, and manipulated them, they were already unwilling to testify and help lock her up. The prosecutor laid out that for over six years, Lori had starved and overmedicated her children. She had failed to teach, train, and nurture her children, he told jurors. All the while, she was also exposing them to risky and unnecessary procedures. As a result, Tom, Roger, and Chrissy appeared to be chronically ill and developmentally disabled, unable to perform basic tasks, or physically able to take care of themselves. She had them, as well as others, believing they were terminally ill and used sympathy for her children in order to gain attention and profit financially. Prosecutors also uncovered evidence of more common forms of child abuse, including head injuries to the children, as well as healed broken bones in the medical records. In one startling report, during one stay in the hospital, Tom's arsenic level had spiked, without any known cause. Chrissy, it was determined, had been smothered by her mother to induce her cyanotic episodes when she was a newborn. Since the children had been removed from Lori's care, they had begun to thrive and live normal lives. In the two years they had been away from their mother, they had a grand total of four doctor visits between them, three of them for routine checkups. Lori was wheeled into court during the month-long trial, still claiming to be paralyzed. Her attorney argued that the children had seen board-certified doctors who had signed off on the procedures and believed the children to be ill as well. She claimed that Lori was also surprised when the children became healthy, truly believing that they were terminally ill. After about seven hours of deliberation, the jury came back with its verdict. They found Lori Williamson guilty of both counts of injury to a child. At sentencing, the prosecutors urged the jury to give her the maximum sentence. They said that while the children were now physically healthy, they would have a lifetime of emotional healing to overcome what they had endured. They also explained that medical child abuse, Munchausen syndrome, nor Munchausen by proxy represented any kind of mental illness. Lori had been evaluated by psychologists and psychiatrists multiple times and found to be legally sane and mentally competent and free of any diagnosable mental disease. The jury returned a verdict of 15 years. Some were less than happy with the sentence, but it would mean that all of her children would probably be adults before she was released. While Child Protective Services had sought to end both Lori and John's parental rights, Lori's rights were permanently revoked while their father continued to fight to gain legal custody of his three children. He had since remarried and was living in Austin, Texas. He regained custody of his children in 2009. John and his wife, Sherry, reported that the children were all healthy and doing well in 2010. Tom was taking just three medications, 
one for ADHD, a mood stabilizer, and a sleeping pill. I can imagine some of that was to help him deal with emotional issues he must still suffer from the abuse. Roger was only on a small dosage of a mood stabilizer as well and was being weaned off of it. Chrissy was on no medications at all. As the youngest, it seems she had been able to bounce back the quickest from her ordeal. The children were seeing a child psychologist regularly to help them transition to their new life, and they were all healthy and happy and doing well academically. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thank you to all who have rated and reviewed on iTunes, and a big thank you to all our new Patreon supporters. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and join the Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. I'm working on some cool merch for listeners to purchase, as well as for Patreon supporters. If you have a great idea for a t-shirt, mug, or other swag item, please contact me at esther at truecrimepodcast.com. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.